Now let's see here. We've worked our way all the way down here to verse 12. We'll be starting in verse 12 tonight and we'll go through to uh, maybe verse 16. Uh, there's a, um, a phrase here in verse 12 that we're going to be looking at tonight. And it's sort of the key phrase for this passage. Um, one thing we're going to look at is what it's not. That's what we're going to look at as well. It has been taken out of context and used the wrong way. Um, but really for those of us that are saved, common sense would tell us, hey, no, there's something not right there. So we're going to be looking at that. And uh, first let's look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your wonderful mercies, day by day, moment by moment. Thank you for allowing us here tonight. Lord, as we, we are ready with Bibles open, we ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to understand what it is that's written before us. Dear, wonderful Holy Spirit of God, third person of the Trinity, we ask you please to be our teacher tonight and apply your truth to our hearts. And truly... Dear Holy Spirit, this Bible is likened to a sword. Uh, please use it to uh, trim away things that shouldn't be in our lives and to help us make a, a clean break with the ways of the world and things of the world, bad habits, perhaps bad language, bad thoughts. Please use the Bible tonight to make us more like Jesus. So bless us now in our study. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Well, let's start here in verse 12. Paul writes, Wherefore, my beloved, uh, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now you probably already guessed the phrase that we're, we're zeroing in on. It's this, work, work out your own salvation. And we're going to look at that. But um, he prefaces this with that word uh, obedience. Uh, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. And that's where real obedience is measured. And you know that's true at work. Maybe you uh, work in an office or a factory or something, and maybe there's a couple of people that, that work there, and they work real good when the boss is around. But as soon as the boss leaves the room, you know, then it's, oh, and they put the tools down, they sit back, and they maybe go on the Internet, and they, they waste time and goof off. Unfortunately, there's a lot of that in the world, isn't there? Uh, in schools, you know, when the teacher turns their back, or when the teacher leaves the room, sometimes uh, some of the students will, will put their feet up and cut up and so on. But when the teacher comes back in the room, it's like at work, they say, quick, the boss is coming, look busy. That's sad, but that's, that's a reality. That sort of thing happens. Real obedience is practiced whether the boss is around or absent. And it's the same way like in home, at home. Uh, when mom or dad is around, the children are supposed to obey. Um, when mom or dad are out of the room or are not around, the children are still supposed to obey. And it's that same principle here. The Apostle Paul was a heavyweight. He really was. I know that 
they say that he was a, a small kind of a guy. In fact, the word Paul means small. He changed his word, his name from Saul to Paul, maybe because he thought he was small in, in the sight of the Lord. But he went through this name change. Um, other writings I've read describe him as being bald and having a hooked nose. We don't know. You know, there's nothing in Scripture about that. Um, but he was a heavyweight with the Lord, wasn't he? And he was powerful in his preaching and in his praying. And by the way, those go together. Uh, and so do Christian living and praying. They go together. Very important. And so when he was around, uh, they wanted to uh, please him and serve the Lord. But he's commending them now that he's not around. He's, he's actually in a prison. And he's writing this letter and he's saying, Now just as you've always obeyed when I was right there. You know, obey when I'm not there. And so the obedience is uh, very important. And I think that the, the church at Philippi was known for its obedience. Obedience is a good thing. Obedience is good for pastor. Obedience is good for people. Obedience is good for all Christians. We want to obey the right authority. You know, it used to be before we were saved, we ran around obeying the devil, <coughs> obeying the world and acting worldly and sometimes even devilish, if you will. And that was wrong of us to do that. And when we got saved, we changed masters, didn't we? We had a new owner. Instead of the devil being our father, now the heavenly father is our father. And it's wonderful to be born again into his family. But now we need to yield our obedience to God rather than to our previous employer, the devil. So this is very key, very important here. And I think that the church at Philippi had a reputation for obeying the Lord. Do you have a reputation for obeying the Lord? Um, some of us have a reputation for obeying the Lord sometimes. You know, anyone can obey the Lord when things are really going good. But it's when things are going tough. That gets a little harder to obey the Lord, doesn't it? And the Lord asks us to obey Him. He gives us certain things He wants us to do. Uh, having daily devotions, going to church, tithing, basic things like that. Letting our light shine. We're going to touch on that a little bit tonight. And these are just basic things of obeying the Lord and serving the Lord. How good are we at obeying? Uh, are, we, are we good at obeying when it's easy to obey? What about when it's not so easy to obey? How about then? Are we still good at obeying? So there's a thought there. But we want to get now to this phrase in verse 12, chapter 2, verse 12. And he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, uh, understand something that salvation is not by works. Paul wrote in Ephesians, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works. This verse is not teaching a work salvation. Okay, what do you mean by a work salvation? I mean, okay now, uh, pray these prayers every day, count these beads, uh, come to church services, get baptized, um, uh, give money, light candles, say these prayers, and then you should get to heaven. Well, that's works, isn't it? That's absolute works. And there are uh, so-called Christian churches that teach salvation by faith plus baptism. So, salvation by faith is good, but not good enough. 
you have to add baptism. And they use a couple of verses in the New Testament to make it say that you've got to get that baptism point in there. Otherwise, you can't be saved. Our friends over at the uh, Seventh-day Adventists, uh, they teach that uh, if you're saved, an evidence of your salvation is that you'll worship God on Saturdays. That's the big key. That's why they call themselves Seventh-day Adventists. That's real big with them. It's part of their doctrine. It goes back, um, back to their, their founding uh, 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 lady there who founded the church and, and the, the principles, Seventh-day Adventists. Anyhow, Paul teaches salvation by grace through faith. Never ever uh, do we ever get saved by works. This verse here does not teach that we get saved by works. He's not saying that, okay, you've got to keep working to, to get saved. He's not talking about that at all. Now, you say, then what is he talking about? Um, if you look back at chapter 1, I think you'll have a, a key. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. And if you look at chapter 1, look what Paul writes here to the very same church, the very same people, just one chapter before. He says, um, verse 19, For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul saying that he's not saved? Is Paul saying that uh, he needs the church in order to help him get saved? No. The context, we looked at that very carefully several weeks ago. And what Paul was saying was that he was in prison. And the idea of the word salvation there was to get him out of that situation. The word save can be used in a few different ways. It could be used physically. You're in uh, the ocean and you're drowning and you need to be saved. Uh, it could be used spiritually. You're lost in sin on your way to hell and you need to be saved from going to hell. The word uh, save can be, uh, can be used uh, in those contexts as well. Here's another way that some people might use the word save. That, Boy, I, I would have failed my exam today had not my friend come over to my house and taught me everything I needed to know and saved me from failing my exam. You see how that word is used and in those contexts we understand what the word save means. Well, in these contexts here, Paul is talking about problem situations and getting saved out of problem situations. The church at Philippi was actively working to uh, solve some of its problems. Every church has problems. Every good church has problems. You know, the devil has got a lot of churches in his back pocket. And these churches are worldly and they never preach the gospel and they live for the the flesh and for the things of the world. The devil doesn't have to persecute them. The devil, he's not afraid of them. But it's churches where the people are saved and love the Lord and try to live for God. Those are the churches in which you have problems. And by the way, let me say this. Those are the homes in which you'll have problems as well. Now I know there's a lot of problems in unsaved homes. I know that. And comparatively... You won't get near the number of problems in a saved home as you will in an unsaved home because you've got all of the lusts of the flesh and the angers and bitterness and greed, all that stuff permeating the unsaved home, whereas in the saved home you have the presence of Christ. And if all of the members are saved, all of the members of the family are saved, you'll have a little bit of heaven on earth, but that doesn't mean it would be problem-free. 
there's still going to be problems even in a good home. There's going to be times of argument or <clears throat> times of, of misunderstanding or tears or things like that. It's still going to happen in a saved home as well. Now, in a church where the people are saved and they're trying to do something and live for God and obey His will, there's going to be opposition. The Bible tells us, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It's going to find us. We don't go out looking for trouble, but trouble finds us. It's like uh, we got a target painted on our back or chest or something, and the old devil's back there trying to pick us off with his crossbow or with his sniper rifle or something like that. He is trying to persecute us. Well, are we helpless? Absolutely not. <clears throat> God's given us spiritual armor and a, and a shield of faith. God's given us a local church with loving Christian people that can pray and keep a hedge of protection around us. So we're absolutely not helpless whatsoever. We have uh, the resources that God has put at our disposal. Now, if we don't use those resources, that's another story. We can leave the door wide open and uh, rodents and bugs and wild animals can come in the front door. We need to learn to keep the door closed against these things. So, um, <clears throat> when it comes to the plan of salvation, there's only one way to be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That means good works won't save you. Going to church won't save you. Reading the Bible won't save you. Now, good works and going to church and reading the Bible and even praying, all those are good things. But they're not going to save you. Your toaster is a good thing to have in your house. Maybe your microwave. Some people don't care for microwaves. We have one in our home. We use it to warm up things. A stove is a good thing, isn't it? A refrigerator is a good thing. Aren't those good things to have in the house? But you can't jump on them and ride them to work, can you? Imagine someone jumping on their microwave. Giddy up, giddy up. There's something wrong with this microwave. It's not responding. I'll try the fridge. And they open the door and they climb in the fridge and close the door. All right, let's go to work now. Are we there yet? And they open the door. We haven't moved. Well, that's not the purpose of a fridge. What you want is the family automobile. Or maybe call a taxi or something. That's designed to get you to work. But the toaster's not going to get you to work if it's designed for something else. Good works are not able to get you to heaven. They're meant for something else. And they're all good to have. But they must not be trusted to get us to heaven. Only Jesus can get us to heaven. Only Jesus. So what Paul is saying here in verse 12, when he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, he's not talking about spiritual salvation at all. He's talking about a physical thing. Because the church of Philippi, the wonderful church, and you can read more about it in the book of Revelation. And every great church is going to have problems. And so the church had to work out its problems. Uh, the, the salvation of its problems. With fear and trembling, by the way. I think that that's something that um, is missed in a lot of churches and in a lot of, a lot of Christian lives. Fear and trembling of what? Fear and trembling of disobeying God. How about that? You know, that's something that we don't talk about a lot and we don't see a lot is the real fear of the Lord. 
And that's something very, very precious and very biblical. So, in other words, I think we ought not to take it lightly. If you're going to live for the Lord, you're going to have problems. You need to work out those problems. But you need to do it with fear and trembling. Don't take it lightly. You know, if you're going to uh, swim in the ocean, fine. But remember, there's sharks in there. And there's strong waves and undercurrents and so on. You don't take it lightly. If uh, you're going to uh, use electricity and wire in something or other, fine. But you don't take it lightly. You've got to be careful with what you're doing, even using sharp knives sometimes in the kitchen uh, or in the workshop. How about that? Some sharp tools, some chisels and things like that can slip and leave a nasty wound in the flesh. That's how some guys have learned to respect tools and power tools with a blade with carbide bits that spin around at about 2,000 RPM can take a finger off or a hand off. I remember hearing when I was a young boy a story. My dad was telling me this. It happened over in England, and his dad told him. Uh, it happened in a, uh, a sort of a, a wood shop, a, a sort of a, a mill. And uh, this fellow was operating this large saw, and he was sitting down at this thing, and uh, he was yakking and joking away to his friend, and he turned like this away from what he was doing, and a saw cut his legs up. When I was in Bible college, a buddy of mine told me about his uncle. His uncle worked at a very large uh, wood mill in southern Ontario. And uh, they had lots of huge equipment. And so uh, the uncle was asked to uh, give a tour to some visitors. The regular tour guide was away, and the uncle had worked there for a good number of years. He knew the whole plant inside and out. And so he says, yeah, I'll give a tour. And so he takes the, uh, the visitors on this tour, and he's showing them all these different parts of the, uh, the equipment as it's working. And uh, he said, now this piece of equipment here, we always, always put the, uh, the wood in from, from this side here. And he pointed with his hand. He says, we always put it in this way here. We never put it in this way here. And without thinking, he put his hand in there. There's this noise took his fingers right off. He grabbed some kind of huge big chunk of cotton and stuck it on his hand and said, the tour's over. <laughs> we need to respect the Lord. We need to realize that life is serious. And there's a lot to be afraid of. Yes, the devil plays for keeps. So work out your own salvation with fear and tremble. Very important. Then he moves into verse 13, and uh, then he adds this tremendous uh, angle. Uh, this, it's a peek behind the curtain. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. This is a companion verse to verse 12. When we're told in verse 12 to, to work, here in verse 13, we see that God is also working. And the context even assures us that we're not talking about getting saved and going to heaven. We're talking about the will of God and working out problems and things preventing us from doing the will of God. So verse 13, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Oh boy, I like the sound of that. God is actively at work. Did you know that God is just as much concerned or 
listen to this, more concerned that you and I do his will than we are? You understand that? Every godly Christian wants to do the will of God, but God wants it even more. And so he's not only kind of working things, but he's giving us also the will, the desire to do it as well. I have found that the closer I draw to God, the more desire I have to do his will. Have you found that too? That's fairly common. And I think that's how God works. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. In order to do his good pleasure, you want to do his will, and he gives you the desire to do it. And um, this is where we get into the good works. Now, James uh, talks about good works, and he says, uh, uh, I'll paraphrase it, he said, um, uh, faith uh, without works is dead. Um, he said, being alone, uh, thou, thou sayest thou hast faith, show me thy faith, uh, I will show thee my faith by my works. Now, that's not exactly how he said it, I just kind of paraphrasing a little bit, but he's saying that the works indicate the faith, just like uh, the things we do indicate our love. I could say to my wife, who's not here tonight, by the way, she's uh, in Edmonton visiting her mom, who is uh, uh, soon to be 98. They tell me that's old. Yeah. Today at lunch at the Bible College, we were talking about how once upon a time in our lives, 25 was old. It's kind of funny now, isn't it? Those of us that are 26, looking back on when we were 25. Anyhow, 98. She's got a few years on us, I'd say. Well, um, the... The, the good works back up the faith. Just like as if I were to say to my wife, I love you, I love you, I love you. But I, that's as far as it went. I never took her out for dinner. I never brought her flowers. I, I never bought her a card on Mother's Day. I never did anything for her. Oh, hold it right there, honey. Let me get that door. Oh, let me carry those bags for you, sweetheart. None of those good works. Nothing. All I did was I just said with my mouth, I love you, I love you, I love you. You know, she'd start to wonder, wouldn't she? After about 20 years of this, she'd start to wonder. I wonder if he really does love me. He lets me carry all the groceries upstairs. He never helps me at all with anything. Nothing. He never takes me out. Never picks up flowers on the way home. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Well, I don't know about a love like that. Likewise, in our Christian lives, we can say, I love the Lord, I have faith, I'm saved, I'm on my way to heaven. Look at me, God and me, we're just like that, just like that. See, two peas in a pod, God and me. And yet there's no ministries, there, never bring a Bible, never read the Bible, there's no prayer, there's no tithing or supporting of missions, uh, there's, there's no work whatsoever. Faith without works is dead. That kind of faith is dead. And so the works come into play. They always do in a relationship. The good works always come into a relationship. And that's what uh, Paul is getting at. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do, of his good pleasure. It's good to know that God is with us every step of the way. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. That's really good to know. He'll help strengthen us. 
He'll help give us wisdom and he'll help correct us when we get astray and he'll protect us as well. I was reading a story about a missionary um, to uh, the Batak tribe in uh, Indonesia. Now the Bataks have uh, four million people, something like that, over in Indonesia. And this missionary, his name was Ludwig Namensen. And uh, Ludwig went to work with uh, this Batak tribe in Indonesia. And when he got there, uh, to the village, the particular village he went to, the village chief told him, I don't think we need you here. Uh, but I'll give you two years, he said, I'll give you two years to learn all our customs and uh, then, you know, if we like you, I'll, I'll give you a chance to, to talk, to tell us what you've got. And so at the end of that time, he had learned their customs and, you know, their, their language better and so on. And uh, they, the chief asked him, how is Christianity different from the moral rules and the traditions of the Patak people. The chief said, we know what is right. The chief said, we know what is wrong. The chief said, we have rules, we have laws that say you must not steal. We have laws that say you must not take your neighbor's wife. We have laws that say you must not tell lies. So how is Christianity any different? And uh, Ludwig said to him, uh, that may be true, chief, but Christianity will give you the power to keep those laws. And that piqued the curiosity of the chief. And uh, he said, the power? Do you, do, you think, do you think it would help us? And he said, God is the one who can help you. And the chief allowed him to start teaching uh, the truth of the gospel, Christian truths, to the, the people, and it wasn't long before they started getting saved. And soon the chief himself got saved. And long story short, by the time Ludwig passed away, and he died, I think something like 1910, something like that, by the time he died, there was 180,000 Batak people that had given their life to Christ, and he'd formed them into different churches. Amazing. But the point being, he said that the gospel will give you power to keep those laws. And you know what a lot of people find? They know what's right and, and what's wrong, but they haven't the power to be able to do the right thing. They seem to helplessly give in to the wrong thing. And you see, this is where the Holy Spirit inside us once we get saved, we receive the Holy Spirit. It's not subsequent down the road. It's the moment we get saved. That's why we've got new desires and a, and a new outlook on life and, and a new joy and new power to be able to do the right thing. I know in my own life, I was bound up with, with smoking and drinking and things. I had no power whatsoever to overcome those things. And it was when I became a Christian that God broke the chains. All of a sudden I had power to not drink anymore. Wow, hallelujah. We had a uh, funeral here at the church not that long ago for a dear sister in the Lord who passed away. And for many, many years she was part of Alcoholics Anonymous, part of the group that meets just down the road here. 
And so many of the group were here. I had the opportunity in the uh, hospital room before she passed away, I had the opportunity to share my testimony, a part of it anyhow, and to share with the people what Christ had done for me and how he just broke the chains uh, over the alcohol. And I was amazed at some of them. They just sat there as steely-eyed and hard-hearted as possible, and their response back to me was, well, that's fine for you, but this works for us. But the problem is it's not working. It's not working for them. They're forever bound. They always call themselves alcoholics for the rest of their life. The Lord broke those chains in my life. I'm no longer an alcoholic. It's been over 44 years now. Hallelujah. You see, there's the power. And that this verse 13 here, for it is God. It is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Hallelujah for that. So we get to verse 18. Very simply, he says, do all things without murmurings and disputings. Again, in the context of work out your problems, work out your own salvation. You got problems in your church? Great. Work them out with God's power and without murmurings. And murmurings and disputings happen in a lot of churches, don't they? Wherever you get people together, it isn't long before someone grumbles and mumbles. Someone once said that if you're going to take a job in the church and grumble about it, don't take that job. The Lord doesn't need murmurers and grumblers and complainers. Boy, there's too many of those already in the world. We need people who by faith will serve the Lord without murmuring. Imagine if a young couple, a guy and a girl, and they've been dating for a while, and, and uh, she says, when are you going to ask me to marry you? And he says, well, I don't know if I really want to, and I guess morally I ought to because I've been dating you so long, and oh, all right, um, uh, do you want to get married? And she says, oh, boy, aren't you Mr. Romantic? Man, I don't think I want to with that kind of attitude. He says, no, 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 just don't worry about me. I'll marry you, I'll marry you. And so anyhow, like a fool, she marries the guy. And then for the next year, two years, three years, it's just grumbling, complaining. I don't know why I ever married you. I was better off as a single man. I don't know why I ever did this. And he grumbles and complains. And about everything she tries to do, boy, that would drive her crazy, wouldn't it? I think it would drive everybody crazy. And so as a Christian, if you're going to grumble and mumble about things, better not do them then. Don't get involved. Don't work out problems with grumbling and mumbling and complaining because it's not right. Uh, it says uh, in verse 14, do all things. And that would include the easy things. It would include the harder things of life without these murmurings, murmurings against each other. And listen, sometimes murmurings against God and disputings would definitely be with fellow men. So don't try to serve God if you're going to grumble about it. Verse 15, that ye may be blameless. Now, that's, that sounds better, doesn't it? The sun is starting to shine now on this verse, that ye may be blameless and harmless. I like the sound of that. Say, who would blame us? Satan would. So how can Satan blame us? Because he can go as the accuser of the brethren and he can file a legitimate accusation against you in heaven. You see, here's the thing. 
if, uh, if the devil went to God in heaven and accused any one of you here of murder and treason and things you never did, those accusations would never stick because you didn't do them. You're innocent. But you do something you shouldn't do. You go murmuring against a, a brother and complaining and grumbling. The devil runs and complains, I'm sorry, runs and accuses you to the Father. And that accusation sticks. Say, then what happens? Well, what happens is your fellowship with God has to cool. You can't be close to God and be a grumbler and a mumbler and a complainer. It, it, you will not. You cannot. It's impossible to have close, intimate fellowship with God and to be a mumbler, grumbler, complainer. It can't be done. Your fellowship will, will cool. Then the Holy Spirit will begin His job of convicting you of the sin. And if you're smart, you'll get right with God right away. You'll agree with God if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if you're foolish, you'll say, it's not my fault, it's his fault. You get him to, uh, to confess up first, then maybe I will. No, no, that's the fool's way of doing it. That's holding out when the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart. Listen, you've got no control over what that other person does. Now, you may, what you said may be 100% true. They started it. But when you join in and you start hitting back and throwing mud and making your own accusations and things, now there's not just one person wrong, now there's two people in the wrong. You've got no control over that other person. You've got control over your own heart. So make sure your own heart is right with God. Let God convict that other person. And God knows how to do it. Just ask Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. You ask Nebuchadnezzar if God is able to abase any man. <sighs> Nebuchadnezzar will tell you he sure is. He'll tell you he made a monkey out of me for seven years. Seven years I was driven out of my mind. And I ate straw and grass like wild animals. And my fingernails grew like talons, like claws. And my hair was all matted and grew long. I, I, I frothed at the mouth and everything. After seven years, God gave me back my reasoning, and I looked up and I blessed the Lord of heaven. God is able to abase. He is able to bring down anyone. You might think that you've got a solid income, a solid job, a solid family. You fill in the blank. Solid, solid, solid. It's not solid. It's not solid. God can blow on it. It'll disappear overnight. It's amazing how many people's wealth have vanished overnight incredible how that can happen it's God who keeps us safe but if we stray if we backslide then God has an obligation as a father to correct us and the correcting may be very painful and so that's why we're told to do all things with murmuring verse 15 that you may be blameless so Satan can't, can't blame you and harmless that's harmless against others we're, we're told by Jesus uh, in Matthew chapter 10, we're to be harmless as what? Doves. And wise as what? Serpents. Yeah. That's the only time we're supposed to be like a serpent. Is in wisdom. You know, cleverness. And not evil cleverness, but godly cleverness. And how to stay out of trouble. And how to avoid problems. And look out for one another. We're supposed to be wise that way. Harmless as doves. I uh, read a story about an eight-year-old boy who was um, 
swimming off the Florida coast and a shark bit his arm off. Now that's not a good day when a shark bites your arm off. So they rushed him to the hospital. They saved his life. The doctors managed to reattach the arm. I don't know how. I don't know how they got the arm back. You'd think the shark would swallow the thing, but uh, he just bit it and took off or something. And uh, they got the boy and the part of the boy, and they managed to, you know, stitch and glue it back together. They got, they got his arm back on. Made me think of some churches where they have, uh, you know, they lob verbal grenades at one another. They say things that are, that are hurting. Very little difference between the shark and the way that some people can treat uh, others. And so, folks, we must never, ever let this happen. And if we feel it coming, we need to get alone with God and make things right. And so, he says in verse 15 that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke. And essentially, without being rebuked by God. That, you see, if we live lives that are blameless and harmless, God doesn't have to rebuke us. But when we do legitimate sins and things, we're not blameless, we're blamable here, and we're certainly not harmless, we're harming others, and so that means God will have to rebuke us. But then he says, in verse 15, at the end here, he says, uh, uh, in the midst of a crooked and perverse uh, nation, among whom ye shine as lights in this world. And that's you and I. As Christians, we let our light shine. That's why at work, at school, and in the home, the unsaved ought to see Jesus in us. You go out at nighttime, and often what people do, not always, but they kind of look up a little bit, don't they, at night, expecting to see what? The stars, yeah. Little twinkly stars up there. They're kind of nice to look at, aren't they? When God's in heaven and he looks down on this dark old world, you know what he wants to see? Us letting our light shine like twinkling little stars. Like that's beautiful in his eyes. When we let our light shine. When we let people know that we're saved, that we love Jesus, that we're Christians. One of the tricks of the devil is to be a secret agent for Jesus. Oh, don't tell anyone. Oh, please make sure that no one knows that you go to church or read the Bible. Make sure nobody knows you're saved. Make sure no one knows you love Jesus and want to live your life for God. Oh, why? Because then you won't get a raise. You won't get a promotion. They won't include you in the lunch, lunch room or something. Oh, the devil's smart, isn't he? Forget all that. Let's just let our light shine. Now, we can do it intelligently. You don't have to be an idiot and go about and smack people on the head and say, I love Jesus. Smack. That's, that's not right. But there's many opportunities we have to let our light shine. Soul Winners Academy helps to train and teach God's people how to let their light shine. So the next course is coming up in September. So let's watch for that. And so, shining as lights takes us into verse 16, and this is where we're going to finish. Holding forth the word of life. The word of life. How do you hold forth the word of life? Life, that's 
Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the Bible gives us the gospel, which is the light. We hold forth the word of life. You see the light in verse 15 and the life in verse 16. They go together. They're companions. They go together. The light will certainly help point the way to the life, which is through Jesus. Every Christian ought to be able to share with someone who's not saved how to be saved, how to come to God. Every Christian should know how to do that. And then if that Christian lives his or her life for the Lord, opportunities will appear. Because there's people out there who are in darkness and know it. There are people all around us here in Surrey that are wondering, how, what can I do? How can I know for sure what's going to happen to me after I die? How can I get to know the living God? I sure wish there was a way. I sure wish there was some way I could change my life, improve my life, that I could be more godly. There are people like that in the world, right here in the town. That's why God put us in this crazy old town called Surrey. And uh, we need to hold forth the word of life, and we need to offer it uh, to the unsaved. Um, Benjamin Franklin. Does anybody not know who Benjamin Franklin is? Okay, so I take it you all know, you've heard of that name, Benjamin Franklin. By the way, they, uh, they say that uh, he may have become a Christian before he died. There seems to be some evidence. He was a very intelligent man, and he had a lot of good earthly morals and so on. But as far as I know, he was unsaved most of his life. But I read something that caused me to think that maybe near the end of his life he got saved. I sure hope so, don't you? But Benjamin Franklin, he, uh, he was a very clever man. And uh, he lived in the days before electricity, uh, like ha how we have it here. I know he did his experiments, you know, with the kite and, and uh, static electricity and things like that. But he essentially lived uh, before uh, they had electric lights like what we have. Uh, and a lot of places, a lot of houses were dark at night were dark and you had to carry your own torch uh, with you and what he decided he would do is try and influence the people in Philadelphia where he lived to uh, put lanterns outside their home light up the city so what he did was he got a beautifully polished brass lantern an oil filled one had that mounted outside his house and he trimmed the wick and uh, kept it lit night after night after night it didn't take long before his neighbors admired that light. Boy, they liked that. It made walking around his house very easy. And then, before you know it, one said to the other, Hey, honey, let's put a lamp outside our house, too, just like old Ben Franklin. That's a good idea. Let's do it. And then another family did it. And then another household did it. And another, and another, and another. And it didn't take long. And... The section of the town was lit up at night. There's something wonderful about light. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we need to let our light shine to help others come to, to a saving knowledge of the truth. And so working out your own salvation with fear and trembling, let's do it right without murmurings and disputings. Let's do it for the honor and glory of God. Let's work out our problems, pray through things, work with people that we need to work with and let's find good solutions to problems 
all the while letting our light shine and holding forth the word of life to others. Let's pray together.